This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and teacher R&J Sofer, in conversation with CIAS's Therese Jernes about mindful and non-violent communication skills. This event was recorded on December 12, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. Thank you for coming, Oren. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Mm. I have a lot of friends who've uh, who've attended CIS over the years and done the somatic psych program and the counseling program. So there's there's actually something quite special for me in in being here tonight this week that my that my first book comes out. Yeah, yeah. This mm. practice brings to mind um, one of my questions, which is about um, being in our own experience and then when we're in communication with another, mm. what happens to the focus of our attention? <clears throat> yeah. What does happen? So, um, so much of our world today um, is, is pulling our attention out into, into a screen, um, out into the road, um, to other people, and uh, you know, our whole world is is structured um, around straight lines, uh, hallway, lines in the highway, room. There are no straight lines in nature. Uh, so the the propensity uh, of our attention when we're in, a, in when we're in interaction with other human beings, um, which is um, kind of increased and amplified both by those societal factors is for our attention to, to come up and then out through the eyes, right? So we lose our center, and we end up being out there with, with someone else. And then there's, there's all kinds of risks involved in that, in that because, uh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite it's vulnerable enough to be alive in, in one of these uh, human bodies. And um, when we don't have a center... Um, we're much more susceptible to all of the various forces and impulses and energies around us, uh, emotions, desires um, from from others. Yeah. So you know, contemplative practice, meditative training um, is about finding our ground and and reclaiming our center. And so many of the contemplative arts, whether it's meditation or Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga or even forms of dance, you know, we learn how, how, to, how to find that, um, that core and that central axis uh, in the body. And then the, the invitation of relational practice, um, communication practice, uh, martial arts, other, other forms of relational practice, um, is to learn how to be in relationship with another human being or, or with the world um, and still be still have a center, still be aware of our, of our own ex, of our own experience. 
And so, you know, one tendency is to leave and to go out and, and, and lose this. And then the other tendency, that, that tends to be the most common in conversation, but the other tendency is to, is to withdraw, right, and, and pull away and shut off and, and try to just kind of close down in here. And, not, and, and both, um, both limit our capacity to be nourished by life and to really connect with others. In your book, you you spoke at one point about um, in the bringing presence to life section about um, if we're on our own, giving a hundred percent attention to mm-hmm. our anchor, and then when we're in interaction, having more like ten to twenty percent mm-hmm. in our anchor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this word anchor is a, is a great uh, a great tool uh, for training the mind, <clears throat> and and for. Um, both, both inwardly and also, and also in relationships. So, one of the things that I've done over the years is, is to teach mindfulness to kids. Um, started here in in Oakland and some of the elementary schools, and now I, I continue to do some work training educators who work with work with children, teaching mindfulness. Um, and we teach them that they have uh, an anchor spot. Um, and they, the the kids come up with all kinds of uh, funny misinterpretations, like my ankle spot. <laughs> Or, or my anger spot. <laughs> so we tend to, we'll draw a picture of a, that's the younger kids, we'll draw a picture of a boat, right, on the, on the board and talk about an anchor. And what does an anchor do for a boat, right? It helps to keep it in one place when there's a storm or currents. And so in many of the meditative arts, um, we use various um, sensory experiences to begin with um, as an anchor, as a, as a, a primary object for our awareness um, for the the energies and forces, the energies of our mind uh, to begin to gather and collect. And this is a little bit of what we were doing at the beginning of, you know, feeling your body, feeling its weight, and, and just using that to keep coming back to. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges of what I'm teaching and what the book is about, of, of bringing awareness to relationship and dialogue uh, is that we live in a, in a time uh, in history and in a society and a culture um, where um, what's natural and, and innate and organic uh, to our organisms is, is it sounds like an overstatement, I don't think it is, is under attack in the sense that all, all of the um, signals and systems that we live within um, are kind of in training our whole nervous system to a very unnatural pace, mm-hmm. right? So we're living at a pace um, that's, that's completely unnatural for our evolution. Um, we're also living in a society that's um, profoundly disembodied, you know, so much of our reliance on screens and technology and the overemphasis on the cognitive function and the, the, the devaluing of the heart and the body um, uh, tends to take us up into the, the virtual world. And, and I, don't nec- I don't mean just like VR. I mean our thoughts and plans and projections. And then we have enough of that as humans as it is, getting, getting all of those um, messages and um, kind of encouragements and temptations from the media and technology just exacerbates that. So the pace of our society, the disembodiment, um, and then this um, tremendous fragmentation 
of our attention. You know, there's billions of dollars um, in persuasive design and persuasive technology trying to influence our behavior and own our attention and decide for us where we place our attention. So um, uh, let's, I want to invite everyone here to just do a, a very brief experiment together, and, and I will kind of finally eventually get back to the 10 to 20% uh, part of this. Um, so you don't need to change anything that you're doing right now, but I just invite you to um, put your attention in your hands and see if you can notice or feel any sensations in your hands right now. Just do that for a moment. It might be warm or cool or tingling, moist or dry. Okay, and then shift your attention to your feet. You can put your awareness in your feet and notice any sensations there. Okay, I'm going to take a risk. Was anyone unable to do that? Okay, I've yet to be in a room of people. Brent, you're, you're just giving me a hard time, right? No, you're not. All right, we'll talk afterwards, Brent. <laughs> um, I was about to say I've yet to be in a room of people where someone can't do that, but Brent just proved me wrong. So, um, so, so what, right? You just consciously and intentionally shifted your attention from, from one experience to another. You know how many people and how many companies want to own that right now? So this very innate basic capacity that we have as human beings to choose where we place our attention. There's tremendous power in that for human consciousness. Because what we pay attention to shapes our mind. So there's a saying, a thief only sees a saint's pockets. Based on what you're focusing on, that starts to shape the quality of your mind. Whatever you pay attention to, one of the uh, famous lines from the early Buddhist texts, um, whatever you think and ponder upon, that will become the habit and inclination of the mind. Whatever we spend our time thinking about and focusing our attention on, that, those, that becomes the habit, the internal milieu of our mind. So what we're doing with with contemplative practice and meditation is we're strengthening this capacity to to intentionally and consciously choose where we place our attention. And so informal meditative training exercises like mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the body, we're giving 100% of our attention in certain techniques to our anchor. If it's the breath or the body or a mantra or uh, an intention like kindness or compassion meditation. Whatever comes up, we say, not now, later. And we keep coming back, we keep coming back, we keep coming back to that anchor. And that's training the mind to to be stronger, to be able to resist the impulses um, uh, that arise inside ourself of fragmentation, as well as the forces and the temptations um, and the distractions all around us. So as we strengthen that capacity internally, now when we come into conversation, we can keep some of that attention here, right? And But still be with the other person. And then we start to feel and experience um, what a co- one colleague of mine, uh, Donald Rothberg, and I call and teach, which is relational awareness, 
aware of self and other at the same time. And we can shift the balance of where the attention is. You know, so whether it's kind of just more internal or whether I'm like really out there kind of with you and not so much here with myself at all, which probably, I don't know how that feels for you. It doesn't feel good for me, right? It kind of feels like I'm in your space, right? Because I'm kind of leaning forward energetically, even a little bit physically, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we can learn to shift shift the attention in that way. And then depending on what's happening in a conversation, we may want more or less attention with the other person or with ourselves. So if the other person is saying something that's important and you know sensitive and tender, like I might have 90 or 95% of my attention with them. You know? But if they say something that's, that's challenging for me to hear, I'm starting to get activated, you know, I might only have 5 or 10% of my attention with them. I'm going to be attending more to what's happening here so that I don't say or do something that I'm going to regret later that's going to require a lot more time and energy to clean up. Yeah. It makes me think about something like um, being pulled in towards someone empathically, you know, mm-hmm. feeling compassionate maybe pulls you towards, and if someone's angry at you, if, if this force mm-hmm. is coming out that way, mm-hmm. There's, there can be a retreat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I mean, one of the things that you're, you're touching on is this, this capacity that we have for empathy and for resonance, which is, which is hardwired. It's, it's deeply rooted in our biology and our nervous system, uh, which we discovered in the last few decades. That the, one of the key discoveries was the, the presence of mirror neurons, Right, that that our brains are kind of actively mirroring the movements and the facial expressions of other people around us, of other other creatures. Um, but what's fascinating about the um, so it's innate and it can be strengthened and cultivated and actually needs to be. So the you know even though humans are born with this capacity, if it's not encouraged. Um, and if we don't receive the mirroring and the empathy and the bonding that that um, that's necessary for human development, that capacity can atrophy. It it, it can, you know, be hard, harder as an adult to access or develop if there's if there's some you know um, gaps or difficult experiences. And so that's where like a lot of the work you do in somatic psychology is kind of. Uh, healing and and repatterning some of those some of those early experiences. What's fascinating, though, is um, partly I think just based on kind of our individual makeup, but also to a large degree the socialization process and how we get socialized um, based on our gender and social location and other factors. We may be more or less empathic. And I, I talk about this in the book about the, how there's this presence of what I call an empathy spectrum. Right, that some of us, you know, if something's happening for someone, we're like right there, and oh my god, are you okay? And and others, it's it's a it can be a lot harder to open the heart and feel tends to fall along gender lines, not not entirely as a stereotype, but you know, gen, generally, um, women are socialized more to be empathic, care for others, give up their own needs, you know, while men are socialized to kind of cut off from the heart, disconnect from emotions, and be more focused on providing for the family and sacrificing and abandoning oneself in that way. So 
Um, so what's interesting, just going back to the attention piece, is that depending on um, where we are on that spectrum, right? So, you know, if I have been socialized as a man and, um, you know, my heart, I don't have such easy access to my heart and I'm wanting to connect more with others or have more meaningful relationships, deeper connections, I might need to put more energy and attention and focus on really putting my attention on someone else, putting my focus on someone else, kind of training myself to to think and inquire and feel and consider, well, what's going on for this person and how might they feel and what would it be like for me? You know, so a lot of my attention's out there. But for others, um, highly sensitive people or folks who really, you know, their heart's wide open a lot of the time, the movement is actually the other direction, right? It's like, well, how do, how do I sense my boundaries more? How do I pull that back a little bit and sense, okay, there's space here between us, you know, feel the boundary of my skin, feel the weight of my body, recognize you're a separate person so that I'm not getting flooded with all of your experience as much. And so all of that is supported by this this capacity and training and relational awareness and how much attention is there versus here and what the balance is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well put. Yeah. Well, um, one of the questions that um, Alex uh, mentioned tonight is that with the holidays coming on, that people might want perhaps some tips for um, having good conversations with um family members or people that might be activating in different ways and um, family activating <laughs> not mine no, no no you all you all know the know the joke right about why you know why is your family able to push your buttons so well because they installed them <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so um <clears throat> i i can't remember which one of my teachers said this um, but um, whether you're talking about spiritual practice or communication practice, family is family is like it's not even graduate school; it's like postdoc. You know, family is like the highest level. I, th- I think it's uh, it might be Jack Cornfield or or one of the uh, one of the meditation masters from from Asia who said, you know, if you think you're enlightened, just go spend a week at home with your family. <laughs> so. Uh, Yeah, it can be hard. It can be painful, I think, because, you know, we don't choose our family, and yet we have these deep bonds. And um, we all have our limits. And sometimes the things that we wish we could share, the quality of the relationships we wish we could have with those in our family, it can be difficult to to create the conditions for that, and that can be really painful. Um, I know for myself, a, a huge part of my own journey and my own learning around these tools was was with my family, and I, th- I thank them in the acknowledgments for being patient with me as I went through all of the various phases of, you know, misusing these tools and <laughs> blaming them for not speaking in the right way and. All of, all of those things. So um, so going home for the holidays, conversations with family, you know, I think one of the things that I focus, that I've been th- thinking about a lot and reflecting on 
um, kind of since writing the book, actually. You know, I don't actually know. I don't think I use this phrase in the book, although the whole book is actually answering this question, is how do we create the conditions for more meaningful conversations, um, for more effective communication and healthy relationships? What are the conditions that are necessary for that to arise? And so the book is really a thorough exploration of that internally and relationally. So in terms of going home for the holidays and family, you know, I can share some ideas and tips for the actual, like, you know, being there at the dinner table and your uncle or sister-in-law or whoever is doing that thing again and you, you know, feel like you want to <laughs> run away or, you know, jump up and shout. But, um, but I, I think a, a large amount of what creates the conditions for having an enjoyable and easeful time with family are what we're doing in preparation, the ways we're preparing ourselves internally and in our own life. And so that means looking at things like, you know, how resourced are you, right? You know, have you gotten a good night's sleep, not just the night before, but like a few nights so you're not depleted because it's going to take a lot of energy if you want to stay clear and grounded and not get reactive and pulled into those old patterns and habits, um, what's your community like? Do you have people in your life where you're getting your needs met relationally in the ways that you wish your family could offer, but maybe they're not able to at this particular time, you know? So particularly, I know for myself, when I was in my, um, when I was in my twenties and, um, when I work with young adults, um, we're still kind of in that you know, the, the human brain actually isn't fully developed until sometime into the, the early to mid-20s. It differs for, for, you know, biological females and males. I'm not sure where exactly the, the point is, but all that's to say, you know, we're still in this process of differentiation psychologically. And so um, there can be this, you know, very conflicted relationship between my identity as a member of the family and my identity as as an adult, independent of the family. Um, so, you know, seeing how how much those those needs for being seen, to be understood, um, to be heard, to be appreciated for who we are and the gifts that we have, you know, which are so important for our sense of well being as human beings. Um, are we getting those met in other areas of our life so that we're not so hungry when we go home and see mom or dad or bro or sis, right? If we're getting those needs met, if we're getting those reflections from other people in our life, our friends, um, our colleagues, our faculty or mentors, you know, then our, you know, psychologically, we talk about our ego strength in, in a healthy way. Our sense of identity is more firmly rooted you know, and so then even when the pattern comes up in the family, whatever our role is, whatever whatever the situation is, you know, whether we're the people pleaser or the one who's making, you know, always always making jokes or we're the one who kind of disappears so other people have has space, whatever that role is, when when the when the um when the conditions start to shift and it's like, uh oh, I'm getting back into that same space again, we have a reference point. From, from our own life to call on so that internally we don't need to be defined by that experience. And that's huge. 
you know, because when we have that sense of ground inside and a healthy sense of identity, um, we don't need to fight or argue or push because we're not threatened by whatever's happening in the family, right? Um, so these are some things just to reflect on and think about. You know, the holidays are just a couple weeks away. So, um, But so one way you can work with this um, is to set some intentions before going home. And this is a really uh, very powerful practice. Um, and think about, you know, how do you want to show up? What's important to you? You know, think about the places that you've gotten caught in the past when you're with your family. And what do you want to do differently? You know, you want to be more patient. Um, do you want to be more generous? Do you want to? Do you want to, Is integrity really important to you? You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stuff it. I'm not gonna swallow it this time. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take the risk to say what's on my mind. Right? Maybe it's that. So, reflect on what's important to you. What your intentions are, and then really feel that inside. Identify the intention, and then um, contact it in your body. How does it feel when you're really connected to that intention, when you're actually able to be coming from that place? And take a 3D mental Polaroid. Take a snapshot of it in your mind and in your heart. And then, you know, for a few days before you go back and see family, every day come back to that place, kind of like, you know, touch it with your awareness inside so you become more familiar with that place so that then around the dinner table, in the kitchen, you know, wherever you are, you, you can come back to that intention. So that's, that's one. You're creating that neural pathway to find that place. Exactly. Exactly. You're strengthening, strengthening that pathway so you have more access to it. Another, another great, great um, practice or, or tip is um, come up with some key phrases that you might need to use. I call these can, canned phrases, and there's actually a list of them in the book in the back. Not specifically around family, but just useful things that you might need to say in a conversation. Um, because it's so hard to come up with just the right thing to say in the moment. You know, you know, and maybe if you've been practicing communication for you know a decade or longer, yeah, you can do it. You can kind of flow with whatever's happening um, and find the right words. Um, but even then, you know. Having said something many times before, it's accessible, it's there because of the neural pathway. So reflect on, okay, what are the situations I've gotten caught in in the past with family and what would have been helpful to say and let me actually come up with two or three sentences that I think I might need to use and write them down and practice saying them, get that muscle memory going so that, you know, um, when your aunt makes that statement again that you're afraid she's going to make and she makes it, you can politely say, you know, wow, that's a little bit intense. Uh, I really want to stay focused on enjoying each other's company tonight. Why don't we talk about work? You know, what's happening for you at work these days? Mm -hmm. And, you know, just kind of gracefully, gently change the subject. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another, that's another tip is setting, uh, coming up with some phrases that you might use. Um, and then I think maybe the last one, there's maybe two more, two more that I'll mention. So one is if and when you are engaging with family, try to really listen and be curious. And so this is one of the core steps that I talk about in the book. 
um, which is to come from curiosity and care and really get interested about what matters to somebody as they're speaking to you. You know, underneath the story, even underneath their emotions, what's important to them that you can connect with, that you can relate to on a human level. And so even if we're not sure, listening in that way starts to change things. It changes our experience because um, now we're actually interested. Um, we're not so much judging them necessarily or reacting, but we're, we're trying to understand. And that's a very powerful intention in conversations and communication because it builds trust and it helps to make, um, it helps to actually <laughs> communicate, which is about sending and receiving messages. So if we're trying to understand, we're, we're, we're helping that cycle of communication to actually happen. So really listen with interest and try to hear what matters for people. And then the last thing is, is um, you know, be willing to lovingly set limits, right? So this goes back to that integrity piece, you know, and think about if, you know, if you do need to speak up and say something, how are you going to do that in a way that's speaking from your own heart and your own values rather than judging or blaming the other person? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are there any, I feel like what you've, um, the tips that you've given help this, um, but I have a, if there's any additional tips around if we find ourselves getting triggered, mm -hmm. this moment of feeling that, like the rising up and the wanting to yeah. um, nip at mm -hmm. what somebody said, how do we kind of come back to the anchor? How do we yeah. find our way back? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, take, it definitely takes practice. Um, we've all been there. I talk about, um, I haven't actually talked about this publicly, but <laughs> it's in the book, so I might as well. <laughs> One of my most humbling moments as, uh, as a meditator <laughs> was with family, uh, at my grandma's house. I was in my mid twenties, been meditating for, you know, five or six years. So I felt like, all right, you know, I kind of know this stuff, right? It actually just come from meditating <laughs> <laughs> And um, had an argument with my brother, my only sibling. And uh, we got into it, and he provoked me. And just I just went into a rage. And um, I actually ended up picking up a chair and smashing it. I was so enraged. I felt so helpless inside. I felt so powerless. I was in so much pain for him to understand how I was feeling. It was so painful. And um, it was a really pivotal moment for me, actually, because um, because <laughs> I recognize I've got some anger to deal with. <laughs> I recognize there's some, there's some emotions here that I haven't actually sorted out, you know, yeah. and um, and that there were things that I wasn't actually addressing or contacting in my meditation practice. So, so how do we deal with it when we get activated, you know? Um, the first, the first and most important thing is just being aware that that's happening because so often it happens so quickly, right, that we don't even notice until we've, we've said something or lashed out or, um, you know, slammed the door and, and taken off. And they're like, oh, God, I just walked out, right? So this is where mindfulness is a great um, ally is that when we're actually aware we get these kind of early warning signals that we're getting activated. We feel 
we're clenching our hands, we notice we're getting hot, we feel our breath change, we feel our jaw tense, we notice our thoughts are racing, all of these different signals physiologically, emotionally, or psychologically um, that the nervous system is moving into sympathetic activation and to fight flight. And so then we can, then when we get those signals, we can start to apply some of the techniques that you're referring to, to begin to regulate our nervous system. And so some of those would include um, just the very simple basic taking a deep breath, you know, which we all know, but remembering to do it as something else. Um, feeling your hands or your feet is a really excellent way to um, interrupt the, the kind of runaway train of activation. Um, a lot of the uh, sympathetic activation emotions we feel will be here in the core of the body. So bringing the attention to the periphery. There's also a lot of nerve endings, particularly in the hands. And most of us can feel our hands or feet very easily. So you can anchor your attention there in an easy way. Um, shifting your attention. So here we are again relying on attention and the capacity to choose where we put our attention. So this is really important because when we're getting activated, if we focus on the thing that's sending us, the person's facial expression or what they're saying or what, or you know, the judgment that we have, that's just going to jack it up even further. So we want to consciously and intentionally shift our attention away from the stimulating thing to something more neutral or grounding or soothing. Um, that could also include sound. It could include the space in the room, right? Because when we're getting activated, it's like everything's getting really heated and um, intense, so we don't have any space. So we become aware of physical space around us that can, that can create more of a container for the energy uh, to move through. And then um, the, um, the skill, the tool, one of the tools that's um, greatly underutilized in most circles and communities, with one exception, um, which is to pause the conversation actually acknowledge, you know, I'm noticing that I'm getting really upset and I'm not sure if it's going to be useful for me to continue the conversation. I'm wondering if we could just pause for, I don't know, an hour or a day or something. Um, and whenever you do something like that, you want to actually start with saying some kind of affirmation of the, of the intention to connect or have the conversation. So this is really important to me, or I'd like to figure this out, or I want to hear what you're saying, or I'm interested in understanding where you're coming from. You get the point, right? We want to lead with that reassurance to the other person, like I'm not just checking out and cutting off, and now's not a good time. Can we take a break? Yeah. yeah. The one exception is in spiritual communities, where it tends to be very conflict avoidant. And so they, you know, they, they will overemphasize that not talking about things to a fault where everything gets suppressed. We're just not going to talk about it. Right. Then that, then that tool of restraint and holding back and not talking gets, um, gets, uh, gets used, gets misused to avoid things. And then you have to go break chairs. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Anything that you'd like to 
we had this list of things we were going to talk yeah. about, and we meandered in different yeah, places. Yeah. So, um, anything to share? Uh, yeah, anything. Um, yeah, I'd love to tell just a short story or two yeah. from a couple of my students about the power of these skills. Um, you know, um, I taught a retreat recently in uh, in New Mexico, and um, about 25, 30 people, a whole week of mindfulness and communication and relational practice. It's a really wonderful experience. And uh, one of the participants was an older gentleman in his 70s from Colorado. Um, didn't say much the whole week. And um, I was very curious, like, you know, what's going on for this guy? Kind of Midwestern, sort of cowboy type. This is, seemed to be his kind of vibe. And uh, so at the closing circle, he did say one or two things, but at the closing circle, everyone's sharing, you know, just a few words of what they're taking away or what was meaningful for them. And the mic gets around to him. <clears throat> and he says, uh, you know, what I learned this week is that my wife is the person I talk to the most, but talk with the least. I'm going to change that when I go home. Really beautiful, really touching for me to hear that. And there's that sense of, you know, at the heart of these tools, and I, I, I say this multiple times in the book, is that communication is not about what we say. The words matter. They're important, and, and they can help us in many ways to get clearer and build connection. But ultimately, it's not about what we say. It's about where we're coming from and about the the quality of understanding and connection that we're able to create. And when we, when we get present, when we actually show up, we can, we can feel and experience the sense of mutuality that, you know, communication is this kind of mysterious gift that we have to contact one another's unique world and experience. Yeah. Earlier when we were speaking backstage in the green room, um, we were talking about when you don't quite know what to say or you don't have the answers, being mm -hmm. able to be in that space of just um, sorting through it out loud with somebody right. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of the great um, gifts of, of communication training that I feel very fortunate to have been <laughs> exposed to through the nonviolent communication world and training of that, you know, we can really just trust our moment-to-moment -moment experience and not even need to know what's going to come at the end of a sentence because there can be so much pressure to have it all figured out and wrapped up neatly and know what we're going to say, but just being able to contact what's actually happening in the moment and speak from that place, or even if we're not naming everything that's happening, because that's not always helpful depending on the situation and the context and the level of trust or safety that there is. When we can be aware of that, that can inform just in the moment what we're going to say next uh, without needing to know what the resolution is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Is that true curiosity yeah. of not knowing ahead of time where it's going to go? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just aware we've we've been chatting for the whole hour and I just, I just kind of want to mention and acknowledge um, and, and give gratitude to um, 
just some of the, the, the three, three of the main streams that, that inform my work. And so, you know, the contemplative arts and the contemplative practice that I study comes out of the Buddhist tradition. And so I'm, I'm kind of forever indebted to my Buddhist teachers um, for sharing with me. And the kind of the heart of the communication tools that I've learned and which I teach come from nonviolent communication, which was founded by Marshall Rosenberg. Um, very powerful and transformative um, awareness practice and communication technique. And, and then the, the deeper understanding of how our nervous system works um, comes from Peter Levine and the, the training of somatic experiencing, which I know that we share. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of profoundly grateful to uh, each of those practices, traditions, and the, the founders or the lineage that has kind of maintained uh, that wisdom in, in each of those, those schools. Yeah. And did you start first with um, nonviolent communication or with mindfulness? No, or I started was it with a... meditation. Yeah. I started with mindfulness practice, and then um, within a few years realized that um, all of the beautiful presence and compassion and peace uh, would somehow very quickly evaporate when I was having a disagreement or argument with somebody, even just a coworker, you know, around, you know, how the carrots were cut or something in the kitchen. Uh, and so I realized the need for some kind of a bridge between the internal cultivation and the external relational realm. And that's when I uh, came in contact with Marshall Rosenberg um, and started reading and learning and going to trainings and retreats and workshops and developing those tools. And I did most of my training right here in Oakland um, at, uh, at Bay NVC, Bay Area Nonviolent Communication, with uh, Mickey Kashtan and her, her late sister, Inbal Kashtan, and some of the other trainers there. Um, and, then, and then further down the line came in, into contact with Peter's work and somatic experiencing. Yeah. And um, in your book, and we spoke a little bit about this, um, the relationship between um, these practices and social change, you know, how can these practices help support? I, I read the how first... How much time do we have? <laughs> right. I think, how many? Five minutes? <laughs> yeah. So, so the question, how, much, how can these support... Social change. Yeah. It's a huge topic. I mean, we could have a whole another hour-long conversation about it. Um, so I'll, I'll say just a, just a, just a couple or a few things. Um, one is is just a, this: it's a deep concern and and um, passion of mine from an early age, and particularly today, because of everything that we're facing um, in this country uh, and on the planet. Um, there's immense suffering and a, and a, and a real uh, pressing need for um, for compassionate change uh, and also it's um, it's it's a learning edge this is an area where I feel um, ill-equipped in many ways because it hasn't been my main focus and so I feel like I you know particularly as a white heterosexual male I'm I'm in my own learning process for the last 20 years as an adult and continue to be humbled and learn about my, you know, my own blind spots and, and privilege and conditioning. Um, 
So, so all that said, you know, I think these, these tools are, are indispensable for social change in a few ways. Um, one, the internal work of mindfulness and contemplative practice and the internal transformation that comes with um, relational work and nonviolent communication can help us can help help us to heal some of the places and the wounds that we carry um, so that we have more energy um, for for the work and I think in in in, in essential part of working for social change is on the one hand mourning um, you know uh, allowing ourselves to feel the pain uh, of what's happening not suppressing that but being able to metabolize it in a healthy way uh, and also developing resilience and so the inner practices are one way of, of supporting that so that's one essential way in which they help um, a second essential way in which they help um, is one of the one of the great challenges I think that that's been kind of acknowledged and pointed out about social change is the um, the risk of recreating the very systems that we're trying to change. And what, one of my favorite quotes about this comes from Albert Einstein, who said, "The consciousness that created a problem can't solve it." So the social systems and institutions within which we live that are not serving life, that are destroying communities, that are breaking people, um, those were created by a certain consciousness, a certain worldview, um, a certain set of beliefs and assumptions um, that's perpetuated by certain by the socialization process. And so in order to change those institutions, one essential component needs to be a shift in our consciousness from a worldview of separation and scarcity um, and obedience to authority and right and wrong and um, being separated from our sense of empowerment and internal motivation. So if we're not working to actively transform um, those beliefs and assumptions and views which are very deeply embedded in our consciousness because they've been kind of imprinted from a very early age by our family, our school, our society, the media. Um, we run the risk of recreating the same kind of domination systems that we're living within. And and we see this, and I hear about it when I teach, and I and I work with activists. And one of the things that I hear over and over again is is the infighting that happens among affinity groups or organizations working for social change can be, you know, as bad, if not worse, than the kind of uh, you know um, aggression that we see on different sides of the aisle. So transforming our consciousness is a second way that these tools can help with social change. And then, and then the third way, you know, is, is and this is, this is why I'm so fascinated by and in love with communication training and relational practice, is that our communication, because it's, it's internal in a way, and it's external. It sits at this nexus, at this bridge between our inner experience of life and our ex external experience of life. So um, 
when we have communication training and skills, we can be more effective in, in advocating for and working for social change. It, it actually gives us the mechanisms and the tools to advocate in a way um, that's powerful and persuasive uh, without being controlling, dominating, violent, or oppressive. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it gives us a, a truly collaborative way yeah. to understand each other. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And to access um, to access our power and our voice while staying connected to the humanity of others. Yeah. Reminds me of a part of your book where you talk about being able to empathize without necessarily having to agree with. Right. Yeah. This is one of the great gifts and strengths of empathy. Is that we can we can see the shared common humanity um, with others. Uh, even with others w- with whom we very, very strongly disagree with their um, their actions or their views or their beliefs, that we can we can find something uh, underneath that um, that we can relate to and, and connect with, and this this is kind of at the core of nonviolent communication, which is the the view that comes out of humanistic psychology, out of Carl Rogers' work and uh, Abraham Maslow's work, that human beings are motivated to meet basic fundamental needs and that those needs are universal, that they're shared. And so when we can identify this deeper layer of what matters, our fundamental values or needs, um, we sense our shared humanity. And, and our commonalities, then, from that perspective, outweigh our differences. That's what we find. I could tell another story about shared needs. This, um, this is a story that I heard from uh, a, a colleague of mine of ours, uh, Mickey Kashtan. Um, <clears throat> so some women met at... Um, uh, demonstration in Boston quite a few years ago. I think this was actually in the 80s uh, or the early 90s. Um, um, so one group of women from a pro-choice group and one group of women from a pro-life group. So demonstration, kind of standard scene, picket lines, um, banners, signs, shouting, yelling. And somehow... Within all of the hubbub and craziness, you know, so one one woman says to another, "Like this is crazy." One woman on one side says to a woman, "This is crazy. We're not going to get anywhere just yelling at each other, right? <laughs> this is not going to accomplish anything," you know. And so they started talking and they exchanged numbers, and um, they got together afterwards. And so a small group of women from each camp started meeting regularly to talk, to talk about their views, and to get to know one another. And so they met for a number of months, um, and you know they would debate and ask questions uh, and listen to one another, but they also got to know each other's families. You know, they shared about their lives. They, they really got to know one another. So the interesting thing is none of them changed their views. Nobody had, you know, as, as far as I, I understand, kind of an epiphany of, you know, oh, they're right, and I'm you know, going to give up my perspective on this. But they humanized each other. 
They're able to see and respect the values underneath the position and recognize each other's humanity. And so at some point, the women from the pro-life group got word um, that somebody was planning on coming to Boston to bomb an abortion clinic. And they heard this, and they responded. They put a word out into the network. They said, you are not welcome in our community. Please do not come. That's the power of these tools. When we're able to see the humanity in others, even when we disagree, we won't see violence as a viable strategy to meet our needs because we recognize the shared humanity. Yeah. I have this wish for you to be a consultant to the Senate. (laughs) (laughs) Spare me, please. You know, I, I mean, there's a great need for these tools in our worlds. There always has been, but it's it's kind of like in our face right now, you know. And so um, that's my hope with, with this book is that the more people who have access to these tools um, in small ways – the more we'll be able to hear and listen to one another, which is, which is I think, what, what we need so much more of today, and which is not being modeled. You know, it's, it's completely absent, for the most part, from public discourse, which, you know, f- I think m- many, many are saying, and I would agree, that, you know, when, when we can't actually have dialogue, you know, that's, that's the breakdown of, of civil society and of democracy, when we can't actually have um, a respectful discourse about our differences and engage and try to learn from one another and challenge one another and be inquisitive and say, well, what, well why? And, and where's that coming from? And that doesn't make sense. Or here's the problem I see with that, you know? And uh, that's more and more absent. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and so, you know, the, the, the gift and the possibility um, is that um in many ways this is our nature you know uh children have to be taught to hate children have to be taught to see difference and separation and um you know when we're given two options as human beings uh and both of them um more or less will meet our needs equally all things being considered human beings will naturally choose the option that causes less harm because we feel, because we're empathic, you know? So this is not something new that we need to create. It's something that we need to return to. We need to unlearn the things that we've learned and come back to something that's more natural. At least that's my view. Well, thank you all so much for coming tonight, for your attention and your presence, and um, it's been great having you here. It's been great to talk with you, Oren. Thanks for having me, Teresa. You've been 
listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.